0: So last week, we uh, started thinking about the question of uh, why do we believe the Bible, and we uh, thought specifically about uh, several arguments or evidences for the the fact that the Bible is inspired and true, and yet uh, those can't ultimately be what our confidence is in that ultimately uh, these things are not sufficient for us, that these arguments for believing the Bible or arguments that the Bible is inspired still allow people to stand in judgment over Scripture and leave us with a level of uncertainty. And one of the reasons is because we cannot create a set of external criteria to evaluate the claims of inspiration. And that's where we said, uh, you know, we don't have like a list that says, How do you know if this was from God? Well, look for A and B and C and D. And so we don't have that list. We can't create that list on our own. And and the only person who could give us a list like that would be God himself. That he's the only one who could say, this is what my word is like. This is how you know that you have my word. And so the answer comes up, if that's the case, Where would God give us that kind of list? Where would he say this? If some document purported to be God's word answering this crucial question, hey, I found it. Here's the list. God tells us in this list, this is what his word is like. What would we immediately have to ask? Well, what evidence could man have that this second message is a divine message to us? How do you know that this list is from God? How can you figure that out? At some point, the message Claiming to be from God would have to be its own authority. There's no reason then why that should not be at the first point. Thus, only God is adequate to bear witness to himself or to authorize his own words. And so when we come to the Bible and the Bible says this is God's word, we can just start right there in evaluating that claim. We don't have to say, well, where's the other thing? Where's the other document? Where's the other list? We can start right here with God's word. And really, that shouldn't surprise us, because that's what we do with pretty much everything else we believe as Christians. But why do you believe that God created the world? And the answer is, well, he said that in the Bible. Why do you believe that Jesus is God and man? the second person of the Godhead who out of the human nature and came to earth? And the answer is because that's what God told me in his word. Why do you believe that Jesus died to pay for sins? Why do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Why do you believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone? Why do you believe that Jesus is coming again? And the answer to all of these questions is because God told me that. So why do you believe the Bible is God's word? And the answer is because God told me that. It's the same place that we get everything else. And so this evening, I want to, to help us to understand that on, on two levels. The first is the biblical and objective claims of inspiration. Where in the Bible do we see that the Bible is God's word? How do we hear God's word telling us that this is God's word? And we're not going to look at all that we could on this. I want to just focus on on one uh, line of evidence, perhaps the, one of the strongest lines of evidence, that the Bible is God's word, is you look at how Jesus looked at the scriptures. The way that Jesus treated the scriptures. That many of his statements show his belief in the inspiration of the Old Testament that he quotes the scripture as an authoritative rebuke of Satan during his temptation in the wilderness. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Satan comes and tempts him, and Jesus' response is, it is written. Or when the Sadducees come and say, well, there's this man and his wife, you know, and he dies, and his wife marries his brother, and there's seven of them, and they all marry this woman. And so in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And his response is, well, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures. If you knew the scriptures, you wouldn't be in error. That he affirmed the authority of the entire Old Testament in Matthew 5.18 when he says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And other statements reveal his belief In the historical accounts of the Old Testament miracles, including the creation of Adam and Eve, don't you know that in the beginning, God made them, male and female? Or the flood, Jonah and the fish. As Jesus looks at the Old Testament, he says, this is true and this is of God. Then when we think about the nature of the New Testament, we see that Jesus as well helps us to, to expect another divine record. To be given, that just like in the Old Testament, you had a divine record of God's dealing with the nation of Israel, bringing and His redemption, of bringing them out of Egypt, setting them up as a nation, promising a promised Messiah to them. That after the Messiah comes, we expect something like that again in the future. So Jesus, when He's talking to His disciples in John 16, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. I think sometimes we we think this is a promise for us. I think this is a promise for the apostles. That he's saying the spirit will work with the apostles to make sure that they are giving the truthful, inspired account of Jesus. It's what says says earlier in John 15. When the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. That they're going to give a divine record, an inspired testimony about who Jesus is and what he has done because their words will be like his words. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Because my word, as the Son of God, is being spoken through you. Your word is the same as my word. And in John 17, he points out that we're going to need this word in future generations. John 17, 20. My prayer is not for them alone. Here he's talking to to the Father in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm not praying just for these 12 apostles here. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So they're going to have a message that's going to be around for others to be able to believe in Jesus through this divine inspired message. And so we could look at as well other other several other evidences. Thinking about how the apostles themselves seem to recognize when they're writing these things, what they're writing is scripture the way they talk about the Old Testament, the way they talk about their own writings. It's clear they're seeing this is God's word. This is God's message. Which leads us then to the second evidence, if I can say it this way. The second way that we know the Bible is God's word. We we look at the objective claims we read through and we see these things that God has said. We see what Jesus has said. We see that this is the word of God. But then secondly, there is a second witness and that is the witness of the spirit. And and I want to see kind of three ways that the spirit testifies that the Bible is the word of God. And the first is one that isn't always included in thinking about the witness of the spirit, but I think it's important to put it here. If we ask the question, how do we know there's a God? From the biblical perspective, the answer is, we know him through creation in our conscience. Uh, Romans 1 says, the invisible attributes of God, his internal power and divine nature are clearly seen. We've known that there is a God from the beginning of creation. Romans 2 says the reason we do the kinds of things that are in God's written law is because God's law is written in our hearts. And so as we see the world around us, we in a sense see this is God's world, the God that I know. And I think really the same thing happens when we read God's word in the scripture. That in a sense, we already know this God. His law is written in our hearts. And so as I come to read, I say, Oh, I recognize this. I hear his voice. This is the God of creation. This is the God who made me. I'm in his image. And so I recognize his word as I read it. And the reason I recognize his word, the reason I'm tying this in with the work of the spirit is because the spirit worked so that it would be his word. The spirit's the one who inspired the divine authors. And so we are hearing the work and voice of the spirit as we read it, and if I can say it this way, I think it 's not like the end of an argument uh, it's it 's a very immediate recognition it's kind of like if if all of a sudden you fall into a pool and I say, What are you in you'd say it 's water if I ask, well how do you know it 's water you're like because i 'm in it it 's right here like i wasn 't like putting my finger in, well, there has a little bit of a, a texture that's similar to water and, and the consistency seems to be water-like and, and the flavor is just like, I'm there and I know it right away. Or if I asked you right now, is the light on over your head? You might say, well, I see some shadows being cast, you know, from my arms or, or from the pews and so, or you could just be like, yeah, it's on. How do you know? I see it. It's right there. And we just recognize it immediately. In the same way that perhaps you answer the phone and you hear your husband's voice, your wife's voice, and they don't need to say, hey, hey, it's me. You say, I know it's you. I recognize your voice. If you're going to to pick up your parent from the airport and they come out, you don't wait for them to come up to you and say, hi, I'm your dad. You're like, oh, as soon as you see him, as, soon as you see your mom, that's her, that's him. Why? Because you know him, you know her. And you aren't saying, you know, that person stands about five foot eight and has this kind of color hair and about this build. And that's kind of like what my dad is, you know, it's like, no, that's him. I recognize him. And when we see creation, that's what we're saying about God. Yeah, this is, this is God's. And when we come to his word, we say, yeah. This is God's word. I recognize his voice. But the spirit has an additional work in connection with this. And that's his work of conviction in John 16. It says, And when he, the spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. And I think the way that the Spirit does this work of conviction is that as God's word is read, or as God's word is proclaimed, as people encounter the word of God, they begin to see their rebellion against this God. They are convinced about sin. Why? Because they don't believe in God. And they realize they have broken his standard, righteousness. They don't have the righteousness that he requires as they see it revealed in his word. And then concerning judgment, that because they have rebelled against God, because they have not met his righteous requirement, they then face coming judgment. And that judgment is, in a sense, is not new to them. Romans 1 tells us that even from creation, people know that people will be judged for these things. Romans one thirty two tells us that. But the Spirit works in connection with his word to say, yeah, you know this God that you should be glorifying? This God that you should be giving thanks to? This God that you should be serving? You're not. The law that he has written in your heart, you know you've broken it. The fact that you know people deserve this judgment, you know you deserve this judgment. That the Spirit... As the word is proclaimed, people recognize, they are convinced through the work of the spirit of these realities. And you say, well, well, if everyone already recognizes God, God's voice as they come to scripture, and if if the spirit's working in them to to give them this this conviction, this, this convincing, then why doesn't everyone say this is God's word and this is the truth? And the answer is that when sinful, unbelieving people encounter God in his truth, they suppress it. They try to evade it. They try to get out of it. And again, we, we see this in general revelation. We, we see this in creation and in Romans 1. I think the same response happens in special revelation. But in Romans 1, it says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven Against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And what's the truth they're suppressing here? Well, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. It's not hidden. It's not obscure. They're not left wondering. They know these things. Because since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And notice that that qualification at the beginning. It doesn't say, for although they could know God, for although it was possible for them to come to a knowledge of God. They knew him. They already knew him. They didn't need to be told. They knew God, and yet they did not glorify him as God, nor give thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So what do we see happening in this passage? They have the truth, and what do they do with it? They suppress it. They have the truth, and what do they do? They exchange it. They twist it around. Instead of worshiping the God in whose image they are made, they make gods in their own image and begin to worship them. And therefore, God gives them over the sinful desires of their heart, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Worship and serve the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. And furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, not to gain it, but to keep it, to hold on to it, to embrace it. Instead, they wanted to push it away from themselves. And so he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And so why then do you, when you read the Bible say, this is God's word. If sinful, lost, unbelieving people suppress the truth, deny the truth, they read God's word and they say, I'm not going to believe that. But when you come and you read God's word, what happens to you? You hear his voice. You, you know this is what God is saying to you. God is speaking to you through the word. And why does that happen? And that's because of the third work of the Holy Spirit. and That's the work of the Spirit in illumination. That The Holy Spirit removes the hostility to the things of God. And causes man to not only recognize and be convicted by the Bible, which he's also doing to, to all people. But to some, he's causing them not to suppress it or to evade it or to exchange it, but to welcome it, to accept it, to embrace it. We see this, I think, in two passages, more, but two passages I want to look at this evening. The first is Second Corinthians 4. of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That when unbelievers look at God's word, what should they see? (coughs) The glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But they don't see it. There's a veil, there's hostility, there's suppressing the truth. And then God shines a light in your heart. And you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you come to the scriptures and you are amazed and you stand in wonder and awe because God did a work in removing the hostility in removing the blinders. And that's what Paul talks about to the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians 2. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And this is evidence that basically Paul's saying, this is how I know you're a believer. This is how I know the spirit is in you. This is how I know you are born again. Because when you encounter God's word, you respond the way you should respond. You welcomed it. You embraced it. You said, this is not Merely the message of man. This is the message of God. Now, I want to take a little bit of time to deal with some objections that people sometimes bring up to to what I'm teaching you. To what I think the Bible says. How do I know that the Bible is God's word? I believe what he says. I believe what he's told me. I want to consider three potential objections to that. The first is that this is circular reasoning. Uh, maybe you've not heard of that before. A circular reasoning is is basically the idea of saying you you are starting with what you're trying to prove in some ways. And so you know, I'm the I believe I'm the strongest person in the world. Why do you believe that? Because I am. It's like well, okay. Could you give me something a little more than that? Right. That's that's kind of what circular reasoning is. And in some ways, this sounds like that, right? Why do I believe the Bible is God's word? Because the Bible tells me it's God's word. Now, I think there's two things we need to keep in mind. The first is it does really matter whether or not the Bible says it's God's word. There's a lot of books I read that aren't saying, I'm God's word. That aren't saying, there's no error in this book. And therefore, we shouldn't conclude, oh, this must be God's word because it never claims to be. And so if I could give one example, kind of as an aside, Uh, some of you may be aware there's a movement of people who say the, the King James Version, when the translators translated the King James Version, that they translated it perfectly. And therefore, the King James Version is the only version of the word of God in the English language. Now, if you read what the King James Translators said, what you will find is they said, we don't think this is going to be the final translation. We don't think this is the perfect translation. We think other people will come along and translate it otherwise. And I think it matters that as they were translating it, they were saying, we don't think God's given us a perfect translation here. But that's not what Peter and Paul were saying. That's not what David was saying. That's not what Jesus was saying. They were saying, this is God's word. And so that matters then as we're, we're trying to evaluate this claim. But secondly, all arguments that deal with an ultimate criterion are circular in nature. An ultimate criterion is saying, what's the final judge? What's the final authority? In a sense, think about it this way. If I am a, a local uh, federal judge here in Michigan, there's a case before me, I don't say, you know what? This is what I think needs to be said here. What do I do? I say, well, what does the constitution say? And what has the Supreme court said? And it goes up to the next level. And what are they doing? What's the constitution say? What's the Supreme court say? When it goes up to the Supreme court, what are they saying? What have we said? And what do we say? Why? because there's no authority above them. They can't say, this is the right way to understand it, and here's the reason why, beyond their own authority, in a sense. The authority they've been given to interpret the Constitution. Now, it's not perfect, because they're not divine. But in a sense, if we're saying, well, what authority can tell me whether or not God is true, and whether or not this is what he has said? The answer is, well, only God can tell me that. And so if God told me that, there's no higher authority I can appeal to. There's no one else I can go to. But that's not just true for me. That's true for everyone. That if someone comes up to me and says, well, Ben, you can't believe that unless you've got evidence to believe it. And I say, so I shouldn't believe anything unless there's evidence to believe it. He says, yes, you always have to have evidence to prove your argument. I say, well, how do you know that? What's he immediately going to do? Let me go to my evidence to show you that. Or if he says, "You need to have rational arguments to believe what you what, what is right and true, and I say, "Well why do I need rational arguments? what's he immediately going to do? Well here's some rational arguments. What am I doing? I need God to tell me what to believe. Well, how do you know that? Let me go to what God said we're all doing the same thing. It's just for me, the final authority is God. For other people, the final authority is evidence, or reason. But all of them are circular. All of them are appealing to their own authority. And so I want to go to what God said. That's what I'm basing it on. Second objection that comes up. That that basically you're simply saying, you know the Bible is God's word because you believe it. This is a pretty subjective kind of argument. Or... It's just a leap of faith. You've just got to, you know, once you say, okay, I know it's God's word and I kind of jump out and then I get to it, then you'll come to know that it's really God's word. Or perhaps it's like the argument, maybe you've heard Mormons use this This is a common Mormon argument. They'll say, you know what? I would encourage you to read the book of Mormon because when I read it, there was a burning I felt. I just had a sense when I was reading it. This is God's word and I think you will too. I don't think that's exactly the arguments being made here. Because remember, there were two parts of this. Yes, one was, in a sense, subjective. It's the Holy Spirit speaking and communicating to me. But the second is objective. This isn't me. This is not my word. This is not my thought. This is out here. And you can see it just as well as I can. You can evaluate just the same way that I can. And so I'm looking to objective statements. I'm looking to objective words as I'm working through these things. If I can say it this way, the evidence is there. It's clear. And it's sufficient. It's available to anyone. The question is just, are you willing to accept it? The third objection that comes up. Somewhat touched on already. Well, the Mormon's going to say the same thing you're saying, or the Muslim's going to say the same thing you're saying, or the Hindu's going to say the same thing you're saying. This is the divine book, and I know it's the divine book because it says it's the divine book. Now, I think there are at least uh, two ways that we can deal with that kind of argument. There's more, but I just want to hit two tonight. One is their inability To support external evidence weighs against them. So, think about what we talked about last week. I kind of mentioned one of the values of arguments of historical accuracy, um, uh, uh, consistency within itself, these kinds of things. That that doesn't prove inspiration. But I think, in a sense, it could disprove inspiration. So, you look, for example, at the teaching of the Quran. The Quran says that God's word cannot be corrupted. And yet the Quran contradicts what God already said. And the Quran actually says God already spoke in the Pentateuch and in the Gospels. But the Quran doesn't match up with what's in the Pentateuch and the Gospels. And so what do Muslims say? Well, That's because they've been corrupted. So wait a minute. Doesn't the Quran say that God's word cannot be corrupted? Yes, that's right. That's why the Quran's never been corrupted. And the Gospels and the Pentateuch are God's word. Yes, that's right. And they've been corrupted. That doesn't work. And so we do have problems like that in other religious books. And as well, um, I think another way to think about this is only the Bible provides the necessary preconditions of intelligibility. That's a, a fun phrase. What do we mean by that? Well, in order to have science work, in order to have logic work, in order to be able to communicate, in order to be able to reason... We actually have to have a certain kind of world. We have to have a world in which our minds are geared towards truth. In which reason is something that we can utilize. In which the world tends to have a certain order and structure to it. We need these kinds of things in order for science and logic and all these kinds of things to work. And what we find in scripture explains that kind of a world what you have in other religious writings does not explain that kind of a world. You can't have science in other religions. You can't have the laws of logic in other religions. You only have them in light of what God has said in the Bible, which is what I think C.S. Lewis is getting at when he said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, and that's what I kind of pointed to earlier, right? Is the sun up? Yeah, it's right there. How do you know the sun's up? You see it, right? But there's the sun. It's here. But also, because by it, I see everything else. In a sense, the sun's there, and that's why, yeah, here's the world. Or the way I've I've put it, and I, I think I've heard it put this way, but it's been helpful for me to think about this. Why do I believe in Christianity? Because as I have come to know the God of the Bible, the world makes sense. I look at the world around me and I say, yeah, that's exactly what I expect to see in light of what God told me in his word. And so I not only see the sun, but I see everything else. and It all makes sense in light of what God has said in his word. So in conclusion... I think it's important to remember the only valid way to know the Bible is true is through the Spirit's witness to the biblical claims of the inspiration. That all the other arguments end up setting me up as judge or end up making it so that I can't really have full confidence. But I can have full confidence. I have 100% certainty this is God's Word. I can have zero doubts as I look at what God has said in his word, his spirit works in me so that I embrace and accept it. Which means both believers and unbelievers need to be confronted with the claims of the Bible. That if I'm doubting, if I'm dealing with someone who's doubting, you know what what I shouldn't do? Okay, let's put the Bible away for a little bit. Let's just kind of talk about other things. What I should be doing is saying, all right, Let's deal with these questions. Let's deal with these doubts. Let's think about these things that you're wrestling with. And let's see what God has to say about them. Because this is what the Spirit uses to help us to know that this is God's true word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. You have revealed yourself. We thank you that we can know you revealed yourself. And I pray that you would give us great confidence in what you have said, and that we would then use your word with confidence with others, that they too might come to see this is your word. Pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.